0: Danger is stealing in as relapse comes up above the den.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 327 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Owings Mills, Maryland. I'm Andrew Brokus. I will be doing the strategy segment solo and then I will be joined by Nate Mavis in Melrose, Massachusetts and also by our guest Jason Sue. Jason is a poker player and coach. He is the author of the book Poker with Presence which is uh, about playing poker with presents. Um, we'll talk to him about what exactly that means. I uh, I don't think I'd be doing him a service by summarizing it, but uh, he's a nice guy and it was an enjoyable conversation, so I hope that you will stick around for that. A couple of announcements before we get into... The strategy segment. Uh, most importantly, you all probably know, many of you probably know, uh, my new book, Play Optimal Poker 2, is out. It is available in paperback exclusively from Amazon, or you can get an ebook either from Amazon or from uh, our website at www.nitcast.com, N I T C A S T.com. That's the Thinking Poker Store, where you can find uh, not just that book. And you know the, the original book, <laughs> Play Optimal Poker, but also our premium podcasts, uh, The Weekend Warrior, Weekend Warrior Tournament Edition, Coaching Carlos. We've got a series, uh, an, an earlier series on tournament strategy. There's some older books from Nate and myself. Lots of stuff in that store. The reason I'm highlighting that is that uh, I've decided to donate all of the proceeds all of the all of the June proceeds from the Nitcast store to give directly which is um, a charitable organization, a, a nonprofit organization that gives money directly to people in in poverty. Uh, this is one of the most efficient ways uh, of... Addressing poverty, and of course poverty is always uh, a a global problem or has been a global problem for a long time, but uh, especially now with uh, the way that people have been affected by um, COVID-19, poverty worldwide is a particularly large problem. Um, It's something I've been wanting to try to address in a more Uh, Systematic way. I mean, I've made individual donations, but um, I've been wanting to to do something a bit more organized through the podcast for a while now, and uh, I think this is a good opportunity. Um, So, uh, Give Directly does have programs uh, that give specifically in the United States. Uh, My personal opinion is that. not that that's not important, but that um, often the money does have greater impact when given to uh, people who are often living in even more extreme poverty than uh, those in the United States. And that's not to trivialize the situation of people in the United States, but in terms of where the money is going to have the uh, greatest impact, that's part of uh, why I chose GiveDirectly and which program specifically in GiveDirectly I'll be donating those proceeds to. So. If you uh, were to purchase Play Optimal Poker 2 or any of the Weekend Warrior podcasts, the original Play Optimal Poker for that matter... Any of that that gets purchased through the Thinking Poker store at knitcast.com, 100% of the proceeds, meaning I'll be uh, eating the costs myself uh, of just the various fees that we pay when you buy things through the store. So all of the proceeds, uh, including your fees, will go to give directly. So a good opportunity for you to support a uh, valuable cause to help out people in extreme poverty and also get some great poker strategy material while you're at it. Speaking of great poker strategy material, uh, our question today actually comes from Carlos Welch. This is a question that he left on uh, one of my videos at Tournament Poker Edge. And, uh, It's actually, he left it over a month ago, Um, I just now realized that it was there, so um, I thought that more people would uh, get the value of my answering it if I were to answer it here, rather than um, in a forum that not a lot of people are going to look at with it having been posted so long ago. Carlos's question is, what does it mean when Piosolver is indifferent between a call or a fold, but it calls like 95% of the time and only folds 5% of the time? I understand the mathematical definition of indifference, but there must be some reason for such a clear preference. Excellent question. Uh, It's Something I've gone back and forth on a little bit myself in terms of how I explain this. Uh, And I'll say first, because although I know Carlos understands (laughs) the definition of indifference, um, probably not everyone does. The only time that you're going to see a solver use a mixed strategy or that you, know, that you should yourself be thinking in terms of, of a mixed strategy is when you are indifferent between two options. In other words, uh, in, your, in his example, you're facing a bet and Solver might say, call 95% of the time and fold 5% of the time. And this is not the only way to be deceptive, right? There, there are hands that uh, at equilibrium, you know, in, in a sort of GTO uh, approach using a solver, there are times when the solver is going to say you should always do something with one hand. So this is not just a matter of like, well, you have to mix up your play or be predictable. Um, there are times when the, uh, a solver is going to have a strict preference for, for a given play. Um, you know, it, It's always going to raise or always call or always fold certain hands. The only time that it employs a mixed strategy is when the expected value of the two options is the same. And if one of those options is folding, and folding always has an expected value of zero. What that would mean then is that at equilibrium, if your opponent is playing perfectly or you have no insight in anyway into how your opponent is going to play, then um, calling is no better for you than folding. So the question then is, why call 95% of the time and only fold 5% of the time? And this gets to, what does it, what does it, an equilibrium strategy really mean, and, and where does it come from? Because of course your opponent is not playing perfectly. Um, if your opponent were, so if you knew that you were playing against Piosolver, it literally wouldn't matter what you did here. It would not be important to call 95% of the time, you could choose to fold 100% of the time if you wanted to. If, your opponent were, uh, if you knew that your opponent were pursuing a, an equilibrium strategy, that would be a fine thing to do. You, you are truly indifferent. The reason that you may not actually be indifferent is that um, the, the time to use a sort of GTO or equilibrium strategy is not only when you believe you're playing against someone who's you know, going to play as perfectly as a computer is, but also just when your opponent's strategy is unknown to you. The reason that you would have a strong preference for calling is that uh, if you if if, if you called uh, or I if, if you didn't call ninety five percent of the time, right? If if you say called fifty percent of the time and folded, if you just said, "Well, I'm indifferent, so I'll flip a coin and decide what I want to do," or you'll just say, "I'm indifferent and I don't like variance, so I'll just fold because that's the lower variance option." Um, the problem with that is that it would be exploitable. I think in general, when when you're trying to make sense of an equilibrium solution, or make sense of a a solver output, it's helpful to ask, how could my opponent exploit me if I didn't do this? So in this case, most likely, if we're talking about indifference between calling and folding, if you were to uh, call less than 95% of the time, presumably that would make your opponent's bluffs profitable. Right. so I mean, what, what what generally happens with these mixed strategies is your ratio of calls to folds makes your opponent indifferent to bluffing. His ratio of bluffs to value bets makes you indifferent to calling. So you end up with at least some hands. Like, there, I mean, there might still be some hands that are that are good for calling, but with some part of your range, you end up being indifferent between calling and and folding. And that's based on your opponent's uh, betting frequency, and then your calling frequency is what makes him indifferent. So if you were to say, well, I'm only going to call 50% of the time with, with this combination, then that means that your calling frequency would be too low, and now the equilibrium has been upset. Your opponent is no longer indifferent between checking or bluffing with some of his hands. He would now have a clear preference for for bluffing. So then he would want to increase his bluffing frequency, and then because of his increased bluffing frequency, you would no longer be indifferent between calling and folding. You would now have a preference for calling. So we, we, we fall out of equilibrium. So then, the question is: Why? I mean, does this mean that calling is better than folding? Like the fact that we're doing it ninety-five percent of the time, does that mean the calling is better than folding? Strictly speaking, the answer is no; um, they have the same expected value. Practically speaking, um, the answer is maybe, <laughs> or often. What I mean by that is, let's suppose a case where. There are. I mean, I guess this would be a limit game. There, there are twenty big bets in the pot, and your opponent makes one big bet. You know, bets bets the river. So one big bet on the river. So now you are getting odds of twenty-one to one to call. So you're getting huge odds. We might say in this case, um, you know, you should you should literally never fold. Right. I mean, this this is the kind of case where you would be calling ninety-five percent. Even if you're like. Almost certain your opponent is bluffing, the the risk, or sorry, almost certain your opponent is not bluffing, right? Like he almost certainly has it. Um, the risk of him bluffing in this case, because bluffing is such an appealing option for him, he would win so much if you folded in this case, if you ever folded in this case, you know, he, he, he would win so much that you sort of call even though you're expecting to lose. I mean, this is a case where you need to win less than 5% of the time for your call to be profitable. So, I mean, a lot of people, like when you're getting 21 to 1, uh, I think any limit player would tell you, like, you just don't fold, you know, you just, you just, close your eyes and call. Whatever, however bad your hand is, you just call because it's, it's such an expensive potential mistake to fold. If this were the case, if you literally always called here, then your opponent should never bluff in this situation. If your opponent gets there to the river and he just has one big bet left, then he should say, well, you know, the, the pot is so large at this point, my opponent's never folding, I might as well save this bet, and so I just won't bet. And if you knew that he were doing that, if you knew my opponent, you know, he will not bluff in this, he'll just never bluff for one bet into, into 20, then you could fold. And you would save yourself a bet. And in fact, folding would be very correct. I mean, if you knew your opponent were never bluffing in this spot, then you save yourself an entire big bet. And that's a big deal in a limit game. I mean, a, a big bet is like a huge part of your hourly rate in, in a limit game. So finding a spot where you can save an entire big bet um, is, is very valuable. So what this means is uh, like when you see these kind of frequencies, what it usually means is like there is an obvious play. But if you take the obvious play every single time, then that would be that would be exploitable. There would be something your opponent could do to exploit it. And in this case, you know, in, in that example, the exploit would be never bluffing and, and, and saving that bet. So you're still supposed to call most of the time, just on the outside chance that the opponent bluffs, but you are supposed to fold every once in a while. And the, the question that falls out from this then is, you know, when I look at a solver and I see an output like this that says, okay, call 95% and fold 5%, should I even bother with that or should I just round it to 100%? Um, if your opponent is playing an equilibrium strategy, it's not going to matter, right? That, that's one. Um, and even if he's not, the, um, the EV loss of rounding it to 100 is not going to be especially high, right? just because that, that 5% of times that you were supposed to fold isn't going to come up that often anyway. So if, if you don't really know what your opponent's strategy is and you choose to say, I'm just going to make the obvious play and call every single time, and it turns out that in fact your opponent is using the exploitative strategy of never bluffing in this case, you're still not costing yourself that much money because um, the, the, it's only like the 5% of the time that the equilibrium strategy would have folded and you didn't, that there's like an EV loss from your strategy to, to, to that one. Um, the reason why you might not want to just round to one hundred percent, and in fact, uh, why you could even prefer the, the the option that the the solver would rarely take, is for exploitative reasons. And I'll give you a slightly different example. There's um, w- one of the situations in play optimal poker too that uh, we come back to a few different times from different angles is a decision of whether or not to continuation bet. On a 976 board with two hearts. For a lot of people, betting, like if you were the pre-flop raiser and you see a flop, I mean a lot of people default is to bet anyway, but many people might recognize: okay, a 976 two-tone board, maybe I don't want to just bet any two cards. But if I flop a flush draw, you know, that's an obvious bet. So a lot of people are, you know, they're gonna bet very frequently when they have flush draws there. And that is the solver's preference. I mean, the the solver mixes literally every single combination of flush draws that that the preflop raiser could have in this situation. The solver plays them all as a mix. It mixes checks and and bets. But with most combinations, it prefers bets. It, It bets at a higher frequency. And that's because betting is kind of like the obvious play. I mean, there are a lot of a lot of good reasons to bet when you flop that kind of hand, you know. Especially if you have like a queen jack of hearts on that nine seven six hard heart board, you, know, you have a hand that has very little unimproved showdown value. So you're pretty happy to get folds with your hand, but you also have a hand that does not mind growing the pot. It's just the sort of uh, a best of both worlds kind of bet. And a strategy where you just always bet with those um, might not be that bad. The exploitability of it might not be that high, but it's worth asking, well, you know, what if I just did that? What if I just made the obvious play, the, the play that the solver seems to prefer anyway, or the, the play that the solver chooses at a higher frequency? What if I just did that 100% of the time? How could my opponent exploit me? This is a complicated question when we're talking about flop play, and there's probably several other exploits besides the ones that I'm going to discuss, but I think there are two obvious ones. And they have to do with what happens when a flush card comes on the next street. So if you bet the flop and your opponent calls and a flush card comes on the next street, one of your opponent's exploits, if he knows that you or suspects anyway, that you are going to bet the flop at a too high frequency with your flush draws, that you're always, or you're or at least at a higher frequency than a salver would, you're gonna bet the flop with your flush draws, uh, then your opponent cannot pay you off when that flush gets there. Um, you're you simply are you're gonna, you're going to run out of bluffs. <laughs> you're not going to have enough weak hands to balance all the strong hands that you have, and so you're not going to get as much value as you would at equilibrium. Your opponent is just going to be able to say, oh, that's such a good card for his range. I just have a bottom pair. I'm going to fold." Then the converse of that is, if you check, and the turn is a flush card, your opponent might be able to predict that that's a bad card for you, that you're never going to have a flush in that situation. And then, assuming there's enough money behind, your opponent can punish you by overbetting. Right now, you've capped your range, and your opponent can attack that with a polarized range and deny you a lot of equity. Even if, even with some of the stronger hands in your range, you can end up becoming uh, indifferent between calling and folding, meaning that the equity of your set or whatever has been reduced to zero um, be- because your opponent has has made such a large bet with a polarized range. So, if you knew that your opponent, like, I mean. If, if you could say, if you could predict, my opponent is going to, if, if I bet the flop and my opponent calls, he's going to overfold heart turns. If I don't bet the flop, if we both check the flop and the turn is a heart, my opponent is going to just start shoveling money to the bot. There's huge over bets as, you know, with bluffs and for thin value. Well, that would give you a lot of incentive to check your flush draws now, even though there's, there's clear value in betting flush draws. Now, the way your opponent is playing, you actually have a lot of incentive to check your flush draws because now, when a flush card comes in, your bluffs are going to be really profitable and your flushes aren't that profitable anyway. So, the, the, the scenarios where you bet the flop and get called and then the turn is a flush card, those aren't that valuable for you to hold a flush anymore if your opponent has made the decision to overfold those cards. And the scenario where you check the flop and turn a flush are super profitable because your opponent is just like shoveling money into the pot. So if you knew or suspected that your opponent were playing this exploitative strategy where he's going to overfold heart turns if you bet and he's going to overbluff heart turns if you check, now your incentive is to do the opposite of what the solver seems to prefer. Even though the solver says you should mostly bet, that's assuming your opponent pursues balanced strategies on the turn. If your opponent is going to be imbalanced on the turn, um, either just because that's, that's how he plays or because you think that he's um, trying to exploit you, and you're going to try to get a step ahead of, ahead of him and exploit him, then you would actually have a preference for doing something other than what uh, what seems to be the solver's preference. So I do use the word preference in the book when there's this sort of mix where you know, one of the plays is taking a higher frequency than the other. And I don't think that's incorrect, even though technically the EVs are the same, um, I, I think, like in, in colloquial speech, it is fine to say that there is a preference for one option over the other. Um, I think what that really means is that there's kind of like obvious value in the one on the one side of things, and only if your opponent does something specific, or like your opponent sort of has to do something specific in order to make you not just prefer that thing all the time. I mean, another example of this is. Uh, slow playing. I mean, generally, you want to bet your strong hands, and the problem is just uh, on certain boards. At least, if you always bet your strong hands, then you end up being um, too strong when some turns and too weak. I mean, much the same thing, like with with the flush draw. So, um, but but it requires it, 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 your opponent has to like anticipate that liability and do something about it in order to make you not just want to make the the obvious play. So I guess I would say when you see this kind of split in in a solver, um, usually it means that one play is is like an obviously good play and the other one uh, is something that you sort of need to do in case your opponent is pursuing some sort of exploitative strategy. And if you're confident that he's not doing that, you don't have to worry about it. But if you're confident he is doing that, then you might actually want to take the, the less frequently used option. You might want to actually employ that at a higher frequency. There's one caveat here that I want to give, which is sometimes you see a, uh, an option used at a very low frequency. You see something like uh, 99.97% bet and 0.03% check. That's a case where you actually do have a pure preference for betting. What you're seeing there is um, just the way that solvers work. They don't actually get to zero exploitability. Uh, you have to tell a solver, when, when you run a simulation, you tell a solver how accurate do you want the output to be. And you, 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 you can't say zero exploitability. That's not something that it, it's capable Otherwise, it would be solving poker. But you can tell it, you know, I want it to be exploitable for a tenth of the pot or a one-hundredth of the pot. And the the lower the degree of exploitability, the longer it's going to take the simulation to run. So what it does is it's, it's an iterative process. It keeps generating... Um, solutions that are closer and closer to the equilibrium and then you know it generates a solution and then it checks whether that solution is uh, within the margin of error that, that you told it was acceptable. And if not, then it runs longer and tries to like iron out some of the exploitability in that in that scenario. So what you're seeing in those cases is that you know it's it's converging to uh, determining that one play is strictly better than the other and it just hasn't gotten there yet. So if it were to run longer, it would convince itself that, okay, yeah, you should just be betting here 100% of the time, but it's still like holding out hope that maybe it's going to find some value, and then that, that, that 0.03% is part of the like, exploitability of, uh, of, of that solution. Uh, thanks, Carlos. It's a great question. I'm sorry it took me so long to answer it, but I hope the upside of a lot of other people getting to hear from it was useful. Again, if you are interested in uh, Play Optimal Poker or the new sequel, Play Optimal Poker Two, uh, any of the Weekend Warrior podcasts, uh, you can get those at nitcast.com and support give directly while you are at it. Enjoy our interview with Jason Sue. Thanks for joining us, Jason. Yeah, Um, pleasure. So I I made, before we we started the official recording, I said, uh, nice to meet you. And you mentioned (laughs) you've had sort of met both of us before. Um, So we had actually clashed online a little bit? Yeah,
2: yeah, for sure. Like 2009, I was charging my way up the heads-up cash game ladder. And I only wanted to play like really good players at that time and so I was just playing with people who were sitting on empty tables and battling two, three, four tables at a time and this urban debate guy ends up beating me for probably like a good 15k at 510 and 1020 10, over a couple of days and uh, sent me on my way back down to where I was before for a little while. Well, while it's, it's very
1: nice to meet you Jason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I purchased this appearance. <laughs> I'm just glad that uh, that you recognized the urban debate for for what it was. Mm-hmm. And I think you said that you were a you were a policy debater.
2: I was. I was a policy debater in high school, and I actually didn't put that together reading your screen name until uh, I was reading about a fundraiser you were doing for Urban Debate League, probably like five years ago. And I was like, oh my god. <laughs>
1: Well it's funny too because as as you uh I I think mentioned and I didn't even know because I had my um my avatars turned off on Full tilt because it would like slow things down a little bit because they were like yeah. animated or whatever, so it was just distracting. So I had the avatars turned off. So I didn't even really know what my avatar was. I mean, I might have chosen it at some point, but I didn't like remember choosing it. And most people, because right, the name was Urban DB888, which like yep. if you actually had a background in debate, you would understand. You would like see DB8 and you might mm-hmm. think debate, but like most people aren't really thinking in those terms. So my screen name was just like Urban something or other, and then my yep. avatar, unbeknownst to me, was <laughs> a black man with a large afro. It's and- uh, was people was. people? I mean, I would get like racist stuff in the chat sometimes, which is not <laughs> not unheard of in chat anyway. Right. But yeah, yeah. I did sort of wonder, like, why is this? And like at some point, like, it, I was like, oh, I mean, I don't know if that actually makes it like better, but it's at least more understandable, like where it's coming from.
2: Yeah, that's hilarious.
1: Um, yeah,
2: so that's a fun little, <laughs> little
1: anecdote. Uh, and how did how did you know Nate, or how
2: did you encounter Nate? Yeah, so I think it was twenty. Fifteen, I was playing a bunch of tournaments that summer at the Rio at the World Series, and I was playing a sit and go after busting a tournament one day, and there's this guy and I was like, this voice, like I just I know this voice. and it took me probably like an hour. I was like, oh, thinking poker that's that's the guy from thinking poker. and then fortunately, I had survived long enough to confirm this with Nate, and then uh, we had a nice chat for the rest of the sit and go. And so that is how I met Nate.
1: Nice. So um, I read in the introduction to your book, I mean, you kind of described yourself as uh, starting off with a background in, like, lots of games or playing lots of games and, and being competitive and then kind of focusing on tennis. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, so when you say, like, started with lots of games, do you just mean, like, casually, like, playing games with your family? Or, like, what did that look like?
2: It was mostly sports, And I just played every sport growing up, and you you grew up where? uh, Houston. Yeah, and it's a good place to play every sport. Yeah, it's it's hot all year round, so you just never have the snow days, and so you just keep playing. And I just loved playing and competing. I loved the the feeling of my team winning the championship, and so that distilled down to one sport eventually, but. I also really just enjoyed playing cards with friends and family, too, but that didn't feel as competitive in the way that sports did growing up. Why do you think that was? Probably because there was nothing at stake, or at least it felt like there was nothing at stake sitting around playing gin or uno or scrabble or whatever else we were playing. Mm. Whereas with sports, it felt like there was just so much invested Every time I stepped out there to play.
1: So I mean, you mentioned like liking the feel of of your team winning a championship, but then you graduated, or not graduated, but you you ended up focusing on. I mean, I guess it's not entirely not a team sport, but like mostly not a team sport, mostly an yeah. individual competition. Yeah,
2: yeah. I kind of moved into tennis out of necessity, just from lacking the athleticism needed to continue playing basketball or football or baseball and so tennis was the game that not as many people were playing and the most athletic people were not really playing tennis and so I happened to have gotten reasonably good throughout my like age 10 to 13 and then so when I started taking it more seriously at 14 uh, yeah it was it worked out pretty well
1: what do you feel like you you took away from tennis? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you didn't kind of continue playing, like you said, you stopped at 14 or whatever. So it's not like you went to you know uh, college stopped scholarship.
2: Yeah, I stopped, I was, yeah, I stopped at I stopped at 18. 18. Okay. When, yeah, right before I went to college, and I was staring down the path <laughs> of playing at a very tiny, tiny school uh, if I wanted to play tennis in college, or just giving it up. And I was very, very much happy to give it up at that point.
1: So you were like ready to be done with it? Yeah, yeah. Just burned out or it
2: what? It was a case of I knew I had gone as far as I could go with the s- skill set that I had. And there was nothing else I could really do to advance much further than where I had gotten. And so I was happy to just hang it up and not really wanting to invest another four years of my life into getting just a little bit better at this thing that wasn't really going to be a huge thing for the rest of my life. So, yeah, just ready to move into something new.
1: What do you feel like you took away from your experience in tennis?
2: Definitely so much around what it takes to succeed in terms of mental toughness and how important it is when you're playing a game versus somebody else to... Understand where they're at mentally and where they're at emotionally because the same guy who walks out on the court when he's super confident and blasting shots by you in the first set might get a little rattled by the middle of the third and those same shots you can just set him up for and you know he's going to miss them because he is no longer in that same space.
1: What is it about tennis that brings that out? I mean, I know people talk about mental game in in all sports, but it seems like tennis, uh, there's a lot more talk about it. I hear more talk about it in tennis than uh, I do in, say, like football or or, or baseball. Is it just because it is like you're out there by yourself, or what's the...
2: Yeah, I think you're just not just out there by yourself, but you're so alone. At least in golf, when you play, when you're teeing it up, you're playing partners are standing a few feet behind you. In tennis, no one's within 30 feet of you. And you're just out there by yourself, and it's just you and your thoughts. All the worst things you're imagining are just right there (laughs) with you. And it's really a constant exercise in just centering and playing the next shot because the mind can go so many places when you're cut off from – having a playing partner or if even if you're playing one-on-one in basketball like you can feel that person bumping up against you and you feel that contact you can play off of that energy but in tennis it's just you and a bunch of space before you get to your opponent and and
3: another thing i think people say a lot about tennis is that like you get to choose what shot the other guy plays which is Mm -hmm. not the case in golf (laughs) yes yes um Yeah. And you also get to choose when that person has to take the shot, which is Mm -hmm. also unlike golf.
2: Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and you have lim and you have a limited amount of time compared to golf, right? So you have to make these decisions about what to do versus this specific opponent at this specific angle with the wind, with the sun. And there's just so many variables going on at once. And there's almost no time to think. And so it kind of trains you to like act without thinking if you want to perform optimally.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I'm going to have to ask how you got into debate as well.
2: Oh yeah. So it just started out as I needed a speech requirement. And then in the second and third year, I just well, I liked this girl and she was she was in debate and so I wanted to like hang out with her more. Sounds like and, my story. <laughs> and she was really into it. She was a policy oh. debater. And so I just wanted to like hang out with her and so I started going to more debate tournaments the second year that I was in debate and turned out I found out that I was quite good at it. And by the third year I was doing national tournaments and having a lot of success there. But it really just started out as a lonely high school kid with a crush wanting to spend more time with that person. Which school did you debate for? Uh, Stratford High School.
1: Oh, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I was on the East Coast. I mean, I know, like, <laughs> the very biggest Texas school, like Grapevine yeah. or, um, no. you know, some, some of the, the real powerhouses, but yeah, I don't know, i Stratford.
2: Yeah, not one of those. My, my high school debate coach had coached, like, national winning teams before, but our school was not known
1: at that time for debating. Yeah. And you did that just in high school or in college too?
2: Yeah, it was another thing where right when I was finishing tennis, I was also finishing with debate kind of at the same time and looking at my options and saying, well, do I really want to talk fast for the next four years <laughs> and <laughs> and argue about what Congress is going to do? And I just I was like, no, I really just want to go to college and see what's next. And so that was the time when poker was starting to emerge as a, the next thing in my life.
1: Which was what? What year?
2: Two thousand two was when I graduated high school.
1: So that was a good time to be uh, to have poker emerging in your life. Yeah, it was pre MoneyMaker. So uh, yeah, I mean, that, were you playing online at that time?
2: I was not. I just played. Um, I was playing in home games with my friends that year in high school. That was the first year that I started. You know, I even knew what poker was was that last semester, and then moving into two thousand three, started playing. With whoever I could find in college, that was by that point, that was my thing already. I was obsessed and found some underground games in Austin. I went to the University of Texas. And yeah, so pretty quickly, I was playing like 2 5 Pot Limit Hold'em, 5 5 Pot Limit Omaha, uh, severely underrolled, but everybody was buying in for 200. So I didn't think it was that big <laughs> And uh, yeah, ran good at the beginning, which is kind of everybody's story who makes it onto a podcast like this. (laughs) And yeah, just kind of went from there.
1: And so did you you play like, were you making money from it? Were you making like serious money from it while you were in college?
2: Uh, Not until my third year of college. So the first two years of college, I was winning a little bit, but not anything substantial. And then the year I turned 21, I won pretty good amount of money that year probably like 50 60k playing just three to four nights a week in like two five 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 games and then that summer after the third year of college i banked a tournament in new orleans it was a 1k and i won like over 150k and Ah. so so then i had a bankroll and i was 21 which nobody should have
1: (laughs) (laughs) what was it about poker that Like, why'd you get so hooked on
2: it? I think that poker gave me all the good stuff that playing sports did. But it also offered me an ability to keep doing it and not feel somewhat inferior. inferior (laughs) Because because at a certain point, my lack of athleticism just made sports not quite as fun uh, the older and older I got. And so with poker, it was like, you know we have this same competitiveness this same let's let's bring it and see who does the best here but instead of having to be fast i got to just you know be fast with my mind which i always found was my strength and so it was like a sport almost not quite but a sport that kind of played to my strengths and allowed me to still have that competitive outlet which i still love to this day
3: uh, a lot of athletes understand a lot more than the, you know, the rest of us, uh, uh, that they need to actually play well, like not just be good players, but perform at a high level. Uh, <laughs> is that something that you think you understood more quickly than, than other poker players? Like, you know, something about basic nutrition or or just trying to do
2: more than show up and put in the hands mechanically? I think at the beginning it was just... Like I didn't know how to perform at a high level. I just knew that I really, really wanted to win probably way more than everybody else who I played against. And so I just really tried really hard to beat everybody those first few years, even though I didn't really know what I was doing. And so now I understand how important it is to actually play at a high level every day. But in those early years, I really had no idea what that meant. But my competitive drive and my desire to just win kind of got me to that place without really knowing it, I would say. Yeah. And especially
3: in those days, that probably helped you put in put in volume. Like a lot of <laughs> what has to do with people's success during the boom years, when a lot of the games were pretty easy, is just, just how much they played, I think, right?
2: Yeah, definitely. Just how long you could sit in that chair back then, because... Nobody really knew what they were doing, so a reasonably good strategy was plenty, and then it just came down to being there to be the one to collect the stack from the bad player at the end of the night, and I was, I've always been good at staying up late, so, so that, <laughs> I, guess, I guess that's a skill, but in poker it pays off a lot better than in other uh, occupations, I guess. I'd probably be a lot
1: wealthier if I had that skill. <laughs> I've 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 quit many a good game for yeah. just not being able to uh to really play well anymore and not enjoying myself.
2: Yeah. I'm sad to say I no longer have this skill. I'm in bed at <laughs> eleven o'clock every night now. But for my twenties it was it was definitely good to have.
3: Yeah, I I, uh, I have a two year old. I'm up at four <laughs> six just about every day. So yeah. uh, I look back on the me of fifteen years ago and just sort of shake my head, like yeah, it, it was a different schedule.
2: Yeah, it's crazy. I remember I read uh, one of those. I think James McManus's book. I think I read it in like one sitting.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, positively pissed Yeah,
2: yeah, I think I read it in one sitting. One. Yeah, day. I
3: was entranced. I was entranced by that book too. Yeah. That was. I think people forget that book. Like it,
1: for that year, it it that, just that was a bigger game. deal for me than Rounders in terms of my like cultural interest in poker.
2: Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was it was a wonderful
3: story. It had so much in there. I think it 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 collected a lot of the lore of poker and like it was just it was just really interesting. There were so many hands that were yeah, yeah. Big deal, big deal. Um, I remember many also many mailing lists. Yeah, that's right.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
3: (laughs) Sorry, you remember many a mailing list discussion about how much people like that book.
1: I was thinking. I mean, when when you were describing tennis, uh, the you know the sort of you're out there by yourself sort of element. I mean, poker. I guess you at least if you're playing live, you have people physically close to you, but there's no team or I mean there's are not right. supposed to be <laughs> in, in, in many ways you are uh, alone once you're once you're out there
2: yeah I think it was really just the ideal training for poker in terms of when you when you run bad and you're losing you can tell your friends and they'll give you the sympathetic ear and they'll say that they feel for you but you're really just experiencing that feeling alone And same with when you're running really good and you're trying to fight off maybe the urge to start playing more aggressively or more confidently, or we could just call it spewy for what it is, (laughs) when you're running really good. And so all of these things are just experienced by ourselves, no matter how well we describe them to other people later. It's really just a big game of how well can I manage myself on my own?
1: Yeah, I've often said that, uh, I mean, obviously there's the like managing yourself in the moment or like not, mm-hmm. not tilting or whatever, but yeah. I, I think this is getting to be less true, but for, for a long time, I feel like the, the main thing holding people back from succeeding as professionals was not, you know, not knowing enough about how to play cards. It was really the the more like managing a, managing a bankroll, um, with as you said, like both the the upswings and the downswings. So I mean, yeah. not not tilting when you're when you're down, or you're not not blowing off money when you're down, but also not blowing off money when when you're up. You know, you can't yeah. afford to have that. Like, it doesn't sound like you did it. You know, we were like, oh, I, you know, I won, I banked a 1K tournament, I want 150K. Like, my annual income is now 150K a year. You know, like you didn't you didn't jump to that conclusion. It sounds like, but I think that's an important skill, and like there are people who do that.
2: Yeah, no, I was 21, so I definitely did some of that. (laughs) 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 I don't think there's a single 21-year-old who would not do that in that situation. But but I was able to catch myself before I did anything that I really, really regretted, right? So I definitely learned every lesson that a young player has to learn when they're coming up and they find themselves with a bankroll. But I feel like I was level-headed enough to where I was always kind of like okay that was dumb I'm not going to do that again and okay like I don't want to stake too many people just because I have money or I don't want to play so big just because I have more money now I want I still want to test myself but I don't want to take it too far to where I'm a huge dog and so I think it's less about not making mistakes and more about like I'm glad I'm more of the type of person that only has to learn the lesson once and then I can go from there.
1: Is that how we found ourselves playing 1020? Was you sort of trying to, uh, to, to test yourself?
2: Yeah, definitely. I was never the guy who just wanted to sit and wait for the easy money. I, I did some of that just to make sure I could keep earning. But the thing that made me the happiest was always just playing really good players heads up and then seeing if I was better than them. And if I wasn't, figuring out what they were doing better than me and just getting better in that way. Poker's always been more about creativity and growth for me than making money. I understand that making money is super important and it's got to be done. But for me, when I've placed it first in my poker life and my perspective, I've always done worse than when I just focused on getting better, growing, testing myself, and seeing what I'm capable
1: of. What was your process for getting better in those uh, early years when you were playing?
2: In the very early years, it was reading books. I remember like Super System Theory of Poker were like the first books that I bought. And reading like Rec Poker. I, that was like, oh, a yeah, yeah, yeah. super old reference for, for us dinosaurs. RGP? Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and occasionally discussing Hands that I played with my friends who were equally as bad as I was. And after I got a role and I started playing more online, then the process quickly shifted to just, let's just hire the best person I can find to tell me what they know, because I'm not the guy who can solve things very quickly and efficiently on my own. But if somebody does it before me, I can kind of internalize it really quickly and use it in different scenarios as well so in the very early years like not very good of a process and then after having a role and understanding that people were out there who would tell me everything they know for an hourly rate uh definitely just going in that direction who did you hire first coach was vanessa selbst oh yeah Yeah. she's really smart she's really smart very smart very smart Former guest. Yeah, uh,
0: nice.
2: Yeah, and then it was uh, A.E. Jones, who became a DFS extraordinaire for uh, Heads Up No Limit Coaching. And even to this day, I'm working with guys, uh, mostly a mixed game player now. And yeah, Benny Glazer, who has been on this show as well. uh, He's my go-to for when I find myself in a mixed game situation where I am completely clueless.
3: what what are the mixed games these days like i used to be that used to be my world and and i like it so much but i haven't been to las vegas in a couple years and uh every time i go back like i sit in a game and i buy in and then like i have to ask what the rules are to some of those yeah (laughs) yeah they're like like,
2: "Welcome welcome back nate by the way there's three games you've never played before
3: yeah, 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 yeah. It's uh, and of course they're like extremely friendly to me cuz I don't know the rules. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> but like what what are what are the mixed games these days?
2: If you if you stay at like 100 200 and 4080 and and kind of that level, there's a lot more of the split pot games now that kind of just take advantage of the player who doesn't know the rules that have not a very deep learning curve. So, you know, have your like drama hog games and your producers and and stuff like that where there's like not a whole ton of nuance beyond just learning to not get free rolled. And then once you go above that to like two four and higher, then the players there really value the more skill heavy games, the horse games, the PLO, the you know, PLO eight, um, you know, Deuce to seven, badugi Uh the more classics have kind of won out, the higher you go.
3: <laughs> Amazing that Badoogie is a classic when it's very easy to <laughs> when it's very easy to remember that it was like when it was a gimmick that would never catch on and like everybody hated it <laughs> yeah
2: it's it's definitely like a super high skill game um, yeah. and people love it it's action it's crazy
3: yeah yeah it's really good i mean and like one person gets the whole pot which is which yes. is good for the action yeah. yeah
2: and definitely more games where only one person wins is always my preference yeah yeah that's
1: like a mental game thing, just that people people don't deal as well with uh, the ups and downs of that.
2: Yes, people definitely tilt harder when there's more volatility in the game. But on top of that, the single winner games just in general correlate higher towards a bigger edge, the more skilled you are. So like the more split pot games there are, the more games there are where you're really just setting yourself up to not get free-rolled, and then like anything beyond that is fine. But once you know that first thing, you can kind of like survive and make money off of the fish in those games. Whereas in the single-winner games, there's just a lot more skill and nuance and bluffing and understanding of ranges. And so for both reasons, yeah, people tilt more. And I just enjoy games where there's more degree of difficulty.
1: Is that... So, I, I, the next thing I was going to ask you was how to do, uh, or like what drew you to mix games, but that might have answered the question.
2: Yeah, I was playing, I live in Colorado and I've been here for eight years. And when I discovered poker here, I also discovered that they have a betting limit of $100. And so the only game is either 30, 60, or 5,100 limit, hold'em them um, if I'm not traveling. And so mostly just playing that. And after a few years, it was starting to feel a little bit redundant. And I heard of a home game, mixed game, where they were playing 20 games in a rotation every night. And I said, uh, let me at it. And it was just almost like playing poker for the first time again for those first six months playing mix, where every time after I came home, I was just thinking about hands and say, okay, like this happened. What do I think about this? And that really... Is the feeling that I love about poker is discovering new stuff. And so transitioning to mix was very natural, given that that's my perspective.
1: Have you been able to find mixed games online now that uh, you're presumably not playing live? Yeah,
2: there's plenty of mixed games online. And now that I'm focusing more on the presence and the coaching business stuff, I don't play as much, but we still have a, our regular home game, and we play three nights a week for a few hours at a time, and so that constitutes the majority of my poker playing at this moment.
1: Nice. So I guess because I've got So
3: tell us about that. Yeah. <laughs> so,
2: <laughs> yeah. So uh, about six months ago, at the beginning of November, I was in Tahoe hanging out with a friend and then we also played a circuit event out there and after I busted the tournament I just was sitting in the rental house and I had this thought I was like you know I've had all these ideas around presence and full engagement in poker and how to perform at really high levels and I've taught a lot of people all of these things and I really want to make an impact in the poker world with these ideas because There's a lot of mindset and performance coaches, but none of them are really going about it in the way of connecting to your full body intelligence and connecting fully to your emotions. And so I really thought that there was something that I could do that was different and unique in terms of the mindset and performance coaching world. And took a month, six weeks off and just started writing. And with the good help of our mutual friend, Tommy Angelo, got a lot of good advice on What was working, what wasn't working, how to put things together. And yeah, with the quarantine starting, that gave me that last bit of time to just finish it off
1: and put it out into the world. When you say presence, why don't you tell us what exactly you mean by that?
2: It's kind of a vague term, and the way I like to define it is my ability to be fully aware of what's happening inside of me, as well as what's happening in my surroundings at the same time. So for many people, we will have a tendency to get locked into one pattern. So either I will get too involved with my own inner thoughts and self-absorbed in what's going on inside of me. That's kind of my pattern. Whereas a lot of other people, they get a little bit too drawn to the external stimulus of what other people are up to or what's happening around them. And they lose connection with what's happening with their inner experience. And so I define presence as the ability to be aware of both at the same time, which really levels up what you can accomplish in a day.
1: And when you say going on inside of you, um, or maybe you mean both. I mean, I guess there's the sort of like going on inside of you Emotionally or going inside going on inside of you physically as in the you know, like right now I am breathing in right now I am breathing out.
2: Yeah, definitely both. So Yeah, connecting to breath is a really good way to connect to what you might notice is happening throughout the rest of your body but also being able to connect to your emotions and be able to Know that you're having one when it's happening and acknowledging it. I find is an extremely valuable tool if you want to play high-level poker for a long time. There's so many times in my life where I had really strong emotional reactions to whatever was happening at the table. And I thought the best way to go about it was to just kind of pack it away, put it to the side and deal with it later. But what I found was that in doing so, those emotions would just come out through my play in ways that I really didn't want it to. And so what I do now and what I advocate for all my people out there now is to when you notice you're having that experience of a particularly strong reaction to something to just allow that to happen inside of you and acknowledge it it doesn't have to come out in a big show but acknowledging it will really clear out your emotional dashboard and let you play your best poker
1: So, I mean, assuming, like, something something frustrating has happened to me, you know, I've yeah. gotten drawn out or I suspect that I've made a bad play or yeah. something like that. I mean, when you say let it come out, you don't necessarily mean, like, I slammed the table or I, you know, you idiot, how could you have called with that hand? Like, that's, right. I assume, yeah, that yeah. what you mean.
2: Definitely not. Like, just acknowledging it and saying, this is true, like, I'm kind of pissed at myself right now for making that play or I'm really frustrated that I lost five hands in a row and I'm noticing I'm feeling some kind of fear that I'm not really a favorite in this game right now even if that may or may not be true and and just acknowledging that that's what's happening is plenty like you don't need to cry or yell at the table you don't need to express it outwardly you just need to acknowledge yourself that that's what's happening because you can't stop it it's going to happen we're humans and emotions are a thing and so when you try to pack it away, it's still going to be there and it's still going to manifest just in a bizarre sideways manner through maybe the way you're betting or something like that.
1: The way you're betting, you mean like physically the way you're putting chips in the uh, pot?
2: Physically or just like a complete or just like a slight or large alteration in your uh, strategy.
1: Oh, so sort of like literally like playing different hands, you know? going on tilt in the, in the classic yeah.
2: sense of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and just like projecting ideas onto your opponents that may or may not be true just to justify wanting to maybe get more aggressive just because that's how you're kind of feeling in that moment.
3: How often do you find the people you work with have a, don't really know what it is that they're feeling? Like, for example, somebody thinks that they're angry when in fact they're, uh, they're ashamed. Like somebody thinks yeah. that they're cranky at their opponent for playing badly, but really it's just a a sort of hidden fear that they're not yeah. good enough at poker. Like, how often does that happen?
2: Yeah, that's all the time, including myself. Right, like this never really ends. And and I find that the majority of emotions that we think are happening are often rooted in fear. Uh, I think you hit that on the head, Nate. Like a lot of anger that people think that they're expressing anger is actually just fear that they're not actually good enough or that they are going to lose the rest of their chips in this tournament and it just comes out in a different way so yeah there's this it's a lifelong practice to me of recognizing when I'm feeling fear or when I'm feeling sad or I'm feeling anger and the better and better I get at it the more I find that I'm able to just be centered and calm and play really well.
3: Yeah. So when you're working with people, how how does this go? So I used to do a bit of coaching and I remember some like slightly awkward interactions (laughs) where somebody would say like, Oh, well I feel this and this and this. And I would say like, well, is that what you're feeling? Or really (laughs) are you, are you like insecure that you haven't worked hard enough? Or like, do you somehow feel like inferior or, or something? And like, they would look at me like, (laughs) <laughs> like what? Like I'm not like, just tell me how to play pocket jacks. Like, you're not yeah. my trained, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, how, how does that go just interpersonally?
2: <laughs> yeah. So like I don't consider it my job to give answers and to give them the one thing that's going to change their life. So yeah. I consider it a process of I'm showing up. And my job, if I'm going to facilitate somebody into getting as much presence as they can have, it's my job to get into that space myself first. And so when I'm able to do that, when I'm able to get fully with it and present while I'm coaching, then I have no agenda and I have no idea really what I'm going to say before I say it. And so it's that type of flow in the way that things go. And I've found that it works really, really well. And when I first was starting to learn how to coach and facilitate in this way, I had that same thought. I was like, you know, I need to give answers, right? People are paying me to tell them the thing that they're messing up. And what I found that in this type of work, it's not about giving them the answer. It's about kind of just creating space with them so that they can break out of that fear pattern. And when they can get into a place where they feel calm and centered and the fear is not running their thoughts, the answer kind of just comes to them naturally from that point because they're the only ones who can know the truth about what's really going to help them the most. And the only way to get them to be in a place to find that is to get really present in myself and then maybe show them a few ways to get present in themselves. And then really cool stuff happens from that point.
3: So how do you find the right kind of student, somebody who's receptive or or able to become receptive to that kind of work and not just learning and not just wanting to get like the sort of magic jason sue formula
2: for playing (laughs) pocket jacks right um just really being honest about what it is that i do and what it's not and really being happy to push away all the people who might be listening to this and saying oh yeah that's not for me right Mm -hmm. and so i don't want to try and convince people that they could get something from it if they're not already interested. And so it's actually not that big of a effort. I just offer what I offer and the people who are drawn to it seem to be really drawn to it because they have issues around performance or motivation or, you know, whatever else is happening. And so, yeah, it's like a lot of people are going to say, no, not for me. And quite a few people are very passionate about improving in these ways. And so mm-hmm. it's really easy to just work with those people and not the others. Yeah. Yeah.
3: No, that's good. Good for you. Good for you. It's uh client qualification is an underrated yeah. skill uh, that, that, that holds people back, you know, like among the skills that, that keep independent professionals back is, um, fearing a certain kind of rejection and, and failing to adequately qualify their, their clients. So uh, good on you for, for doing that properly.
2: Yeah, there's, and there's plenty of people out there for all types of coaching. And one of my friends said, you don't want to go shopping for oranges at the Birkenstock store, right? So you just yeah. want to make sure that everybody's motives line up when, uh, when you're trying to work together. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, I I I've, I've found myself um I think because I do have sort of a natural inclination to um to be like a people pleaser or you know mm. to to like well, and also to to win arguments or like convince people <laughs> on the the yes. background of like you don't like I I mean maybe I would feel differently if I had like a dearth of coaching but like i really have you know i I fill the hours i want to fill with coaching without like really needing to do a hard sell on anybody and that you know like that's really it's really not my interest to do that so there are some times when um even if i think that like not that i'm trying to mislead people but like i think that someone could actually benefit from my coaching but like You know, you sort of you you really just want to hang up your shingle and say, like, this is what I offer. And if the person, I mean, maybe they'll change their mind later and decide on their own that they want to come into it or whatever. But it's just like I find it a very uncomfortable experience to work with people who aren't sold. You know, if I if I feel like they're they're kind of evaluating me while we're working together, Mm -hmm. like they're not getting the best of me, which is sort of like counterproductive because then, you know, it's like self-fulfilling where they're like, Is this really worth it? And then I'm like (laughs) uncomfortable or whatever, and then it's like maybe it's not actually worth it because you put me (laughs) on it
2: like yeah the if if they don't have like the full yes to it like there's just no reason to do it and i think every coach kind of learns this early on in their journey is that when you work with somebody who isn't really sold on working with you yet, you end up just having a horrible time, and most of the time, refunding their money at the end, anyways.
1: Yeah, that was the other thing. It was like I always felt if like if it didn't go well, then I would feel like I was like oh, I guess I need to like give you your money. But, I mean, it, yeah. it's been a long time since it happened, but like when that kind of stuff has, and yeah, it's just it's so much easier to just like avoid it from the get go, which is odd because I get people who you know sometimes people are like, oh, well, you know, can we do like uh, uh uh, you know, they'll always say ten minutes, but of course it turns into thirty. Like, oh, can we just do like a quick ten-minute chat to see if this is like a good fit for me or whatever? And like. I really i kind of don't like i'd rather just do the gamble of like let's just do the session and if you're not happy with it i'll give you the money back like that's more plus ev for me than like doing a free you know what ends up being a free half hour yeah absolutely like it's very rare that that someone is like not like if they're already at the point where they're they're approaching me for coaching and i think like i kind of get it especially because we have like the nick cast reputation where people are like like don't you don't you understand why i want to kick the tires or something like that And i'm like (laughs) kind of but i mean I have a lot of people who don't. So like, I just don't need to deal with that. Like,
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and so that's you like many, many years into the coaching journey. Right. And so I remember like the beginning of me coaching in like 2008, there was a lot of that insecurity inside of myself. So I was like, yeah, so let's, you know, I'll give you the free, the freebie or whatever, because I'm kind of like, a little bit desperate or a little bit needing to validate. And then once you know that your stuff is really just legitimately extremely good value for what they're paying you, then you feel very comfortable just being like, no, I'm not doing it.
1: Yeah. I guess that part of it is just like you've had enough success with people. Yeah. They're like, I don't really have any doubts about my own yeah. thing, yeah. so like you can, you know. yeah. Uh, one thing that I that I, I found you know, resonating, I, I can't claim that I've read the book closely, but I did try to you know skim through it, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I'm not 100 percent sure if, if if you you'll be on board with this or not, but I, I think you will be. So I'll, I'll run it past you. And I, I I feel like I've gotten out of the habit of saying I used to say it on the podcast fairly often, of um, a lot of like looking for tales is not about. Assign. I mean, there's very good books. I'm like, I think Zach Elwood's book is very good on, on really trying to assign an exact meaning to things that people do or like figure out what, what does it mean that he said exactly this right now? Or what does it mean that he sat up straight when this happened? Um, I think there are there is good material on that. But one thing I tell people, and I guess this is maybe this is what you would call presence is just like, just pay attention to what's going on around the table. And you can even just say it. To yourself, like okay, this player is folding. Now this player is looking at his cards. Now he's folding. And subconsciously, you'll pick up on things. And you might not be able to articulate. You know, this player feels strong because he wrinkled his nose. This player feels strong because he's, you know, his heart is beating a little bit faster than it was before. Like, you don't have to be able to articulate why it's true, but you can still kind of get that feeling of like, eh, it just feels like he's got it this time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So the first many chapters of the book are in regard to how that concept is kind of true in terms of the actual play of the game, in terms of having that feeling of like, oh yeah, his range is just a little weak here and not being able to explain the full 30 steps to that, but just knowing it and then later on you can do it. And so there's a chapter kind of towards the back of the book that talks about tells and how it's essentially the same thing, right? Like the more information that you know, the more you've studied Zach Elwood's work, or any other work on tells and internalize that information, the more present you are and the more you're locked into what's happening around you, the more you're just going to know what the correct thing to do based on what you've observed is same with, you know, the more you study poker and the better your knowledge gets, the more often you get to have these experiences of just knowing what the right play is to make, the more present you are.
1: I remember it really stuck out for me when we interviewed um, Steven von Zedelhoff and uh, who obviously you know like really, really top flight player, top performer. and one of the um, one of the things he said is you know I'm not thinking about. You know, I'm not like envisioning a a, a pie of solve while I'm playing. You know I'm right. not like solving the situation in in yeah. real time. I've done a lot of that where, you know, I've yeah. I spent hours studying solvers and like looking at yeah. stuff. But when I'm actually playing, I just I, I mean, he made it sound like a very intuitive process of you know I just sort of like see what the right play is,
2: yeah. I like to tell my students that the time to get better at poker is not when you're playing poker, right? So the time when you're playing poker, that's kind of the time to let all of that kind of fade away and just try and get as in the flow of the game as you can get. And when you do that, naturally thoughts about strategy and ranges and breaking down equities and EV is going to happen, but you don't need to force it, right? So there's a big difference between the person who is really just in their head and thinking about every single step of every hand while they're playing a session, and subsequently tanking for a long time and irritating everybody and the person who has studied all that same stuff but just kind of focuses on how can I get to the highest level of performance right now and I find that the second way is not only more fun but probably more satisfying and more profitable for myself and leads to a lot less burnout over time.
1: Do you find it more or less exhausting to be playing with full presence you know like if if, if you play for three hours fully present are you kind of worn out or, or do you actually find that it's uh more relaxing then
2: yeah when I play with full presence I feel like I could play forever and it's when I'm not playing with full presence is when I feel worn out and tired irritated and so for me that's always my number one focus now because when I play a whole session and I feel like I was really engaged the whole time, I go home and I'm just excited to do it all over again because that experience of playing in that way, having that much fun, feeling like I was seeing connections and openings without having to think it all through, that's kind of my favorite thing about poker. And so the more I have that experience, the more I want to play.
1: It's funny. As I was asking you that question, I felt like I was like, it sounded like I was teeing you up for a huge like softball. <laughs> the, the truth is, like I feel the opposite. I mean, I I feel I feel like it burns me out to be that mm. uh, intensely focused, um, even more so playing online. Um, but yeah. but even live, like you know, so like times. I mean, it's been a while now since I've I've traveled to do like a scoop or Wcoop kind of thing, but typically what I'll do in the, you know, I'm I'm doing like days and weeks of you know, multi-tabling and playing a bunch of tables at, at once. And then like the main event comes around and now I'm just going to play like two or three tables and really try yeah. to like lock in on those. And I find those much, like, I feel like I just sort of get into a zone when I'm like multi-tabling, I'll just kind of like get into a zone and I'll be like, Oh, six hours has gone by. Yeah. Um, and, and, but I'm like feeling every minute of it when I'm, mm. when I'm trying to be like very focused on stuff. And I, I've, I find I'm much more exhausted after.
2: Yeah. There might be a differentiation in terms of presence. Like you might be relating presence with hyper focus and hyper awareness. Whereas I don't really consider those two things to be linked necessarily. And so there is a way to do it that can kind of feel calm and relaxing. Like my overall focus is to come from a state of focused relaxation rather than making sure I catch every detail. So those are kind of like two different mindsets. So there might be just like a slight differentiation there.
1: Yeah, and if, as I was talking, I was like, I think I have a feeling what's the- <laughs> 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 what I'm setting myself up for here. <laughs> what, um, do you find it's, it's easier to be present playing live versus online or vice versa?
2: I think that for me, it's kind of all the same. But I think that for the majority of people, it's a lot easier to do it live because you have all of this physical stimulus around you, whether it's the players or the chips or the cards. And when you're playing online, it's so easy to just get drawn into the screen and lose that connection to yourself. Because I've been hearing
1: this so much from people, you know, because now I'm like, people that I'm coaching are playing online yeah. for the first, sometimes, some of them for the first time ever, and they're like, this is, it's so different from playing live, I, I can't focus. Oh, they're also usually playing smaller stakes when they're playing online, they're like, I just can't take it seriously anymore.
2: Yeah, the the amount of crazy spewing that I've seen online, playing in games with the exact same people that I would normally play with live, who they would never make any of these plays if we were playing live, but we're playing the same stakes against the exact same people, and all of a sudden, it's like a completely different person. And I attribute that—I definitely attribute that to them being very comfortable in their body and in their environment when they're playing live and being very uncomfortable in the unknown environment of this online world they've been thrust into.
1: I do find it makes a difference. I don't know how much it's like my familiarity with the software versus when the software is actually better. <laughs> but I, I mean, I, I do find it, um, and I've put like many more hours into playing on PokerStars than I have playing on like America's Card Room or something. But I do find it harder to, um, to focus, I guess, when, when I'm playing on, uh, on on sites with less good software.
2: Yeah, definitely. Whatever. We feel more familiar with and comfortable with. We're going to naturally just start from a better place. At least I think.
1: The it's, it, it seems like in, in terms of the, like self publishing of the book, um, you have you farmed out some of the like the editing and the uh, the layout and that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah, I just used all of Tommy's people. <laughs>
1: Yeah. It, it, it looks nice. I'm, I'm yeah, kind of wondering whether I should not have done the same, but <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know. I guess I'm more of a control freak for for better or for worse. Right. What, um, what did you think of the, like, the writing and, and the publishing process? Did you learn anything about yourself in doing that?
2: Mm, that's a good question. I think that in the writing process, I learned a lot about like just how to be a better writer, how to punch up sentences to make them kind of stand out more and be easier to read onto the next. I think one of my things that I, in my natural writing style, if I was just journaling or whatever, is to kind of just go with very long sentences, long paragraphs. Mm -hmm. And so through the writing process and the editing process especially, just got a lot of feedback around like, okay, you can break this up, you can make this sentence and you really need to like, throw the punch here. And so just learning how to like, almost like if it's boxing and you want to like do some jabs and then go for the uppercut, right? Not every sentence is the knockout punch in a book. And so just learned a lot about kind of what it is that writers actually do because this is my first foray into writing something that, you know, was going to be published. And so that was, that was a big learning for me.
1: It, I, I found it to be different. I mean, I, I had a lot of writing experience before I wrote a book, but still... Yeah. You know, doing a book is so different than doing an article, or so just sort of like needing to wrap your head around a project of that scale. You know, it's just like because you know a, a thing that's three or four pages, even like a term paper or whatever in college, it's twenty pages. You can still sort of like sort of hold all of it in your head at once. In a way, with a book, you really can't. Like you have to sort of do it in pieces. But then also keep track of how the pieces are interacting with each other it's just like there there are new skills to come into managing a project of that size.
2: Yeah and there's definitely a big exercise in letting go of things uh, letting go of certain chapters was quite painful uh, <laughs> yes. kind of towards the end. It was like, oh, but this was like one of the first things that I wrote when I was writing this. and and But just recognizing that it, it was kind of redundant or it just didn't quite fit in with this project, maybe maybe in a future project. And just having to like let certain parts of it go was uh, quite an ordeal.
1: I think there, there's a feeling too. That there's a book that I like called, uh, my girlfriend responsible for introducing this to me. I think it's called Art and Fear. Um, and you know, they're, they're real big on just sort of the, that like, it's all part of the, the process so, Cause it can feel like a waste, as you say, you know, if you write something and then you end up not using yeah. it, So if if you're like, Oh, I wasted my time writing yeah. that. So, you know, you needed to write that in order to find out what the book was going to be about, or in order to get to the thing that you did end up using, like even, even the stuff that doesn't go into the final product, it's not, it doesn't mean it was wasted. I mean, it's the same thing, like, even if you write something that never gets published, like maybe you had to do that in order to get to the thing that, that was published. You know, it's, it's all, uh, it, it, it's not a waste. It's just, it's a process.
2: Yeah. It just kind of takes a life of its own and you can't really control it as much as you think you should because at the end of the day, you're trying to make the best, most integrated product for the reader from front to back. And if that's your number one commitment, then yeah, you just got to kind of let it go and go with what's happening.
1: So the book is available, I assume, through Amazon?
2: Yes, uh, Poker With Presence is on Amazon.
1: Is that the exclusively? Do you have a, a place where you're... Uh, or you have a website anyway, right? I do,
2: yeah. It's it's exclusively on Amazon for now. And then, yeah, I have a website, pokerwithpresence.com, if anybody wants to come see what my work is about.
1: Anything else you want to leave people with? Uh, recommendations or anything along those lines?
2: Mm. Uh, yeah, I recommend that people do whatever they need to do to... Make sure they still have a really good time while they're playing poker, because I think that it kind of gets lost along the way. And so what I wanted to do is just help people to nudge them back into, hey, poker is really fun, too, on top of all the stuff we have to do to get really good at it.
1: Yeah, I just wrote a piece about uh sort of the, the professional mindset of, for for recreational players. This is for Two Plus Two magazine. You know, if it, even if you're technically a recreational player, meaning you know it's not it's not your income, you're non-professional. Yeah. Right? If you want to win money at poker, you do sort of need to approach the game the way a professional would, which means you can't just play. When you were playing for fun, I mean you can just sort of oh, it's fun to call a race with ten seven and yeah. see what happens or whatever. you mm-hmm. know, like you can't do that kind of stuff. But at yeah. the same time, like if if your only goal were to make money, it's unlikely the poker is like the single best way for you to do that. <laughs> yeah, so it's absolutely. like you do need to find something to enjoy about the game. It just might not be the same thing that you enjoyed about it when you were literally playing for fun. Yeah, it's something for everybody. Uh, Well, congratulations on uh, completing the book. That's a a big project, getting it out there. And uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to us.
2: Yeah, thanks a lot. I appreciate
3: it. Pleasure to meet you again. All right.
2: Have a good night.
0: Or the devotion of a car my life Or the fair passage of a bill And who will sign us into law I know you won't, you won't